Our text this morning is from Matthew, Matthew 6. We've been uh, studying the teachings of Jesus through Matthew, particularly a section of Scripture that is called the Sermon on the Mount. I think in general, it might be a, a better way to think about the Sermon on the Mount is it was a Sermon on the Mount in the sense that I, I think probably what Matthew's doing is collecting the sorts of things Jesus often said and giving them to us uh, in a way that's not, it's not that he said this one time, it's that he says these sorts of things. And we've been in this for several weeks now. Um, in fact, two weeks ago, uh, last time we were here, we looked at six examples of how a person might describe their righteousness by the things that they don't do. Right, righteousness based upon the don'ts. Well, I didn't murder anybody, or I didn't commit adultery, or so on and so forth. It's kind of a section where Jesus is handling the person who builds their righteousness on the things that they haven't done. Well, today is kind of an opposite of that. Today, Jesus is concerned about those who might build their righteousness on the things that they have done, their good deeds, the do's of the faith. And so that's really going to be, be our focus. A theme this morning that I'm going to use several times is uh, the difference between focusing on a form versus focusing on a principle. So form is uh, an object, a shape, something that's distinct. And a principle is something that transcends the form, something that drives... Uh, drives it or helps define it. An example might be, uh, take the form of a chair for a second. Think of a wooden chair sitting up here on the stage with me. You could, you could study that chair. You could examine it. And as long as you're examining it as, it's, as it is a form, you're learning a lot about that chair. Okay? But if you approached that chair with carpentry in mind, It's a more principled approach. If you just said, what can I learn about carpentry by looking at this chair? Well, you could learn all sorts of things from the chair that would help you in building a table or even framing a house. There's a difference between the the form and the principle. I'll say it one more way. Um, You know, I actually don't know if do they still put movies on reels. Yeah, okay. So the old—I'm going to say the old, but I guess it's the new. You remember you go to the movie theater, and in the back there was the projector, and had these big reels, and on them were these film strips, which was a long—I don't know how long it was—really long strip of film with individual frames. Each frame was a distinct image, absolutely unique to itself. And sometimes even like in an auction, you could get a frame from like Peter Pan and you could, you could take it home and you could look at the artwork of that frame of the film. And by itself, it's admirable. You can learn. You could look at and study you, you, the, the picture, the background. There's, by itself, it is entirely intact. But that's not how it was intended to be understood. It was intended to sit alongside of all these other frames and be in motion. And when you put it together with all those and you put it in motion, then you get something so much more comes alive, right? 
the picture comes into motion. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. There's examples. We're going to look at five examples, different frames that by themselves are perfectly meaningful, perfectly valuable. We could spend all Sunday on any one of these individual frames. What I want to do, though, is I want to put them together and put them in motion and get the sense of the principle out of it. So uh, and I, I think this is Jesus' goal here. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew 6. And I'm going to start with verse 1, which is kind of like a header or a title to this film. This is what Jesus says. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I think the key from that verse is the idea that uh, Jesus is concerned about you doing something in front of others for the purpose of them seeing you. That seems to me to be the heart of the key to that passage. Not, don't do things in front of other people. I don't think that. In fact, Matthew 5, verse 16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So certainly Jesus is not saying, whatever you do, people can't see what you're doing. It seems that Jesus isn't, what he's expressing is a concern when you are doing things in front of people as to why are you doing them? What is your motive? Motive. Use caution that the visibility of your good act does not corrupt because of bad motive. This is what I think he's talking to. As a point of interest, uh, this is worth saying. Two weeks ago when when Jesus talked about all the things we weren't supposed to do, you know, you've heard it say don't make oaths. You've heard it said, you know, about divorce and adultery and murder and all these things. In that talk, Jesus seems supremely interested in what was going on inside of you, in the invisible place. Now we're talking about the things we're supposed to be doing, giving, praying, fasting, all of, all of these sorts of things. And in this talk, Jesus is going to sound concerned with actually the externals. Why are you doing it in the place that you're doing it? It's interesting how dangerous the visibility of your act can become. Okay, let's look at the very first example. This is the first frame uh, of the film, verses 2 through 4. Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now again, we could spend the whole morning on this if we wanted to, but uh, we're looking for the principle. And it sounds to me that what he's saying here, just in general, is give carefully and quietly where only God is the wiser. 
at least that seems to be the way the teaching sounds. He's interested in this word reward it shows up and it's going to continue to show up. And it seems to, it have, what it has in mind is, is where are you trying to gain the benefit from your act? Okay, which world does this deed belong to? This world or the next? That might be the, what, this exchange, uh, which world are you living towards? Are you living towards the kingdom of God and you're placing your hope in the kingdom of God or are you still caught here? Because if you're doing it to be seen by others, you have yourself in this world in mind. You're really just trying to advance yourself. And you're trying to better yourself with the people and the things of this world. To which the Lord says, okay, well then, that's your reward for it. Don't tell me it's righteous. You just got your reward. For the Lord, the Lord sees things in secret. So if it's for the Lord, it doesn't really need to be seen. You can keep it in secret and God can find it. The Lord sees in secret. Let's look at the second example. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father who knows what you need before you ask Him. Okay. Again, we could talk all day about prayer, but we're looking at the principle. And the moment we start to look at the principle, this sounds very similar to what was said before. God seems to be concerned about your audience. Who is your audience? And in much the same way that I don't think he's forbidding you doing a good deed in public, like the last one, uh, I don't think here he's forbidding you from praying in public either. I, I, the, the spirit of the teaching is to a different idea. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, which he's about to give us, is a public prayer. Look at it. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I mean, it's supposed to be prayed with other people. So I don't think what he's saying is, is under no circumstances should you be praying in the presence of other people, but rather, who's your audience when you're praying? The word hypocrite has surfaced a few times. In these two occasions, you might say this. In the first, a hypocrite is someone who gives something away in order to get something back. So he's adopting the appearance of generosity when he is, in fact, reimbursing himself with popularity. In the second one, the hypocrite is one who under the pretense of talking to God, is actually talking to people. You see that? 
He's using the pretense of praying to God as an excuse to be heard by others. False pretense. Righteousness taking place under false pretense. And Jesus says here, and your language can be simple, you know. How would you talk to God in private? Talk that way. We're not trying to impress the Lord into action. And certainly, God doesn't need to know from you what it is you need. God already knows. Just go to him. Now, what I find interesting about these teachings so far is they seem to get pushier the more religious you are. The more public your service to the Lord is, I imagine these should get a little bit, they get a little more electrified. I'm saying, I mean, I feel it. Pastors, teachers, worship leaders, people who place themselves in front of others in a spiritual environment, I would imagine these teachings are even more pushy than for someone who's private by nature. I really don't see someone having a private quiet time with the Lord who's doing it so that others would see. (laughs) Those things just don't happen. Let's look at the the, uh, well, let's look at the prayer, which, by the way, Pastor Dwayne handled this passage a little over a month ago, so I am not going to tackle uh, at length this, the prayer. I'd like us to read it together in a second. But <clears throat> what I do want to is, as we read it, I want you to try to look for two things. First of all, I want you to notice how minimal the concerns uh, in the prayer, how minimal the concern is for this world. And I want you to know, sort of see how maximal the concerns are for God's world, God's kingdom. So it's going to come up on the screen so that we all sound the same. Uh, this is when you realize that you remembered it in a different translation. Okay? But I thought, since it's to be prayed by all, let's, maybe we'd pray together. And, um, and just again, keep an eye out for this world and the next. Verse 9 says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We should be beginning to feel the principle by now. What in this prayer is really worried about this world? Lord, today can I have the food I need? But as far as God's world, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, your kingdom. You see, the orientation that God would have us have, even though we are in this world, is towards his world. And the orientation that this world would have us have is to can be fixated by it. It's continually goading us to look here for the answers. Let's look at the third example. I'm, gonna, I'm choosing to call this the third example. It may not seem to stick out to, to us this way, but verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, <clears throat> again, we could talk about forgiveness all day long, uh, it, but I think the principle is here. And that's why I want to call it an example. I really think the principle is here. Let's think about forgiveness for a second. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is means letting go. Letting go. Somebody wrongs you, and now you have something on them, right? They owe you something. They owe you, whether it's from a really big sorry, or you want to take them to court, right? There's this gulf of that they owe you. They need to fill that in. And when you are told to forgive, you're releasing that. This power you have over them, this influence, this advantage you have, you're told to let go of of, of this, of something you have over them in this world. That's forgiveness. You are forfeiting, when you forgive, you're forfeiting what is rightfully yours. That's the cost that we feel when we forgive. I forfeit justice. In this world, I forfeit it. This is one of the reasons. One of the reasons that forgiveness can be so hard is that the enemy will bring this idea out to you. The enemy will say to you, if you forgive, you are gonna, you're somehow going to be less than all this. You're giving up something of yourself. That's how it feels when you really have to forgive something. It has some part of you, it feels, has to die. And the reason that that feels that way is because you're never going to get it back in this world. See, the lie of the enemy is, is don't think about the next life. Don't think about the kingdom of God. Think about this world. And in this world, forgiveness means loss. Because you're not getting it back. God is saying, think of the next world. Think of the eternal life into which I'm bringing you, which, by which you entered through forgiveness. I simply want us to observe the, the principle in this teaching because forgiveness equates to living life towards the Lord. I can let go of this because it doesn't matter. My reward, my hope, my life I'm living towards is over there. That's why I can forgive. You see, if you really were living towards the kingdom of God, forgiveness would be that much more possible and easier versus an unforgiveness which says, I'm living for my reward now in this world. Okay, let's look at the fourth example. Fasting. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now again, if our interest was in fasting, we could spend a lot of time here, but it's not. It's the principle. And frankly, I'll say this. I don't really think we have a problem here. I never know when any of you are fasting. I mean, you do it in secret so well that I'm none the wiser. Good job. By now, I think you can feel the principle, right? This is the third or fourth time we found ourselves in this notion that the act 
either the act has been done for this world or it's been done for God. It's an either or. Okay? When we do something that feels righteous, either, right, and either we use it to get some sort of advancement in this world or we find satisfaction in having done it for God. That, by this point, should be present. Okay. One last example, if it is even an example. Uh, I think it is. But I think it's more than that. Let's look at the fifth one. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is often thought of as a form, an example. I think it might just as well be the principle itself. I mean, taken by itself, if Sunday, if this morning's sermon started at verse 29 and went to verse 24, if this was a pure interest was in those several verses there, I'm almost certain that it would be taken as a warning against materialism. By itself, this frame of the picture seems, understandably, treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. That there, But in light of all the other frames that have come before it, I'm not even that sure that he's talking about material treasure in verse 19. Because in verse, all the way through from verse 1 to here, we've seen, well, you have your reward now or you get your reward later, right? Which world are you living towards? You've done his reward. Three or four times now we've heard your reward, you're choosing to take your reward now. You might say at the end of which comes the principle, which is in which world are you storing up your treasure? You see, it could be... It could be about materialism. And, I, and I, I could say it could at least be about that. But I think the principle is all over it. Reward, 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 reward. Where are you storing up your treasure? This teaching on the eye is interesting. You know, if this is purely about materialism, it could be, a, you know, could be the greedy eye of the materialist, sort of longing and lusting after the things of this world. I, I certainly think that's a fair reading of the text. Uh, but I also think, however, it could be deeper than that in the sense of the, the, if the principle's fully at work, a warning about the eye in general. Our eye is designed to see this world. How does it see it? I mean, it's really interesting if you think about it. When you and I are laboring 
for an invisible kingdom what we end up doing with the eye? Do we use it to spy out objects of our desire? Is this, this, that use of the eye almost makes it like inhaling the world in. You're pulling the world into yourself. Like, I want that. Oh, I want that. I, you're, it's, it's sucking things into it versus the, an eye of Christ, right? Christ's eye, what, he doesn't do that. He doesn't take with his eye. He sees with his eye. And when he sees, he sees something as it is and he sees it as it should be, right? And out of Christ comes redemption. There's such a different eye. His is, his is this lamp of light. Like there's light in him, and so what he sees receives mercy versus the eye in this world, which is looking for opportunity, advantage. What is your eye like? Jesus says here, if you're dark on the inside and if your eye is light, how dark must you be? This last portion about masters does end in talking about possessions, right? You cannot serve God and money. But the principle, it just reigns throughout the teaching You're a slave, and a slave doesn't have two masters. That's what Jesus is saying. Either God is your Lord, or you serve the life of this world. You're either chasing after stuff, and I just mean that materially, I just mean you're either chasing after this world, in all of its varied forms. Or you're chasing after the Lord. And the notion is not, I think what he's trying to drive a wedge in is, is the subtle comfort that we have with, like, yeah, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Like, I, I, I like God. And I like fast cars. I do. Well, I think the Lord is saying, yeah, but you have to choose. Choose. You choose the way you relate to this world. Because what's at risk is the way you relate to me. Now, any one of these could have been a Sunday. Every one of them is deep in and of itself, is a worthy topic, but I think there's a danger in approaching each one of these Sunday after Sunday as though they're standalones individual teachings. And the danger is, is that you could ultimately walk away saying this, God cares about how I give, how I pray, how I fast, and what I do with my stuff. You see, you looked at all four frames, you took your time, you studied them, and you've missed the principle. God has used these forms, the Lord has used these forms to develop the principle in us, which is much bigger than that. It's Uh, God wants me to live towards his kingdom with his kingdom in mind. That's the principle is as I walk in this world, even though I am in this world, even though I'm in the world of the eye, I am supposed to be living towards the world I cannot see in all things. I mean, once once you get the principle, then the forms are infinite. 
And there's no escaping it. You can't say, well, I'm righteous because I pray by myself, I give in secret, I, I fast and nobody knows about it, and I tithe. You, you can no longer define it once the principle is alive because the principle is rooting out the other things that you do. Very practically. With the principle in mind, I just want you in your own mind to think, where are your most visible experiences in life? The most visible places in life where you, you do things, you have acts, right? Where is the most, because this would be a place to go to in this teaching and start saying, why do I do the things I do there? What's the nature of my acts there? When, when you're in front of others or when if you belong to this world too much, you might use these moments to advance your position. Where are they? I mean, it's impossible. It would be wrong of me not to mention social media in a subject like this, right? An environment where you can hand select and craft the version of yourself you choose to expose. Um, have you ever seen any example of social media where someone's using apparent virtue to advance themselves? I almost wonder, is it done for any other reason? You know, I mean, I see people on vacation with their family using their vacation with their family as a way of advancing their cred with others. I'm thinking, well, then you just had your reward. Was it for your family or was it for this? Why are you, when you're seen, why are you doing what you're doing? That's another one way to, like, allow this principle free, right? Open it up and let the animal out. Like, to roam through the contours of your life. When you're visible, why are you doing what you're doing? Another way to practically ask this is to begin to think about how do you orient your life around your eye? What does this thing here do for you? Do you... Are you worried about things like, well, I wonder if I look okay, how do I look? Or what are they thinking? I wonder what they're thinking about me. Or I have to have that. Those sorts of statements, those sorts of statements describe what is ultimately a fairly insecure person behind the eye, desperately looking for security, and they've tethered their hope for security like a rope coming out of their eye. They've tethered it to things in the world. Thinking, and these things are pulling and pushing on their insecurity. And the Lord's, That's not how Christ is. Christ is not sort of insecure back here. It's in in all of who he is and all of who he's called us to that we're able to look out on the world with the confidence of our our identity in Christ and say, "I, I see that for what it is. I see what that needs. I see purpose. I can express love. I can look at this selflessly because I'm not tethered to it. Okay, well, we'll close with this way. Everything that's being said here by the Lord is being said uh, for your good. It's, it's being said with your good in mind 
Because here's the reality is everything here is passing away. Everything. We know this. We don't even need to believe in Jesus to know this. Everything here is passing away. You, your possessions, your reputation, even the very memory of who you are is passing away. Why live for a world that's passing away? Why connect your identity to a world that's passing away? Why live for a body that's passing away? Jesus Christ is saying, inviting us to live towards a world that is eternally teeming with life for you. He's preparing it for you. He's saying, anchor your hope there. And here, live like a sojourner here. Live like an alien here. It's okay because this place is passing away. I used to think of myself sort of in, my, in the various sort of Christian cycles I had in life. I'd read passages like this and I'd say, well, here's more things I can't do, more things I can't have, more fast cars I'm not going to own, that sort of thing. And it was just another cost of being a Christian. And I'm coming to realize, I realize it here, I'm coming to believe it more, that I see all, I've seen all of that wrong. What Jesus is in fact doing, what he really is doing for me, is separating me from the need, like freeing me from my slavery. Why do I need those things to feel valuable? I mean, that is what is so messed up about us is that you know it's passing away and yet there's something in you that needs it. And Jesus is here to say, I'm offering you a better life that has no need of these things. So stop living towards them. Live towards God. Those who do bear real fruit. For one, your, anch- your identity is anchored in things that will not rust or rot or be destroyed which means they can't be yanked and pulled upon. That's the first thing. And here's the second thing that happens. Other people will see you. They'll see your works. And they can, they can, the whole world can sniff out a hypocrite, not just Christians. The world can sniff them out. And so when they see you acting and living towards a God who is not visible. They will sniff that out too. And they'll see him. This is what is meant. I'm going to close this. I'm going to close this with 1 Peter. 1 Peter, I just think of First Peter's life, right? In his life, he gave everything up, right? There's people, there's the witness of the apostles show us people who gave everything to a Lord who they once saw but is gone. And they're living life towards him. And towards the end of his life, this is, what he's, this is what he writes to a church. Churches in hard times. I just want you to hear the language bestowed, the identity that is bestowed upon them through Christ, and then the behavior that is called out of them because of Christ. Just, just close and you can maybe bow our heads as I read this. This is from 1 Peter 2. He says to them, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, that's what we need. That's what needs to be behind our eye. 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which weighs war against your soul. Now listen to this part. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Father, we come to you in prayer and we testify to you. You see the inner person. You see us in secret. So we ask, Lord, in your mercy, we ask in your mercy that you would shore up our identity in you so that we would not be yanked to and fro from the things in this world, Lord. We would not be so tragically tethered to them in our identity so that we could walk this world free, free from any encumberment, free free from the need of these things, Lord, and in doing so, act for the right motive, act out of our love for you. And we pray, Lord, that when that happens, many would come to know you, many would come to see you, many would be able to see the invisible God through our witness. This is our prayer. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.